The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Father, we come to you now and we do love your word. And like Daniel prayed, it is your word that does the work. And so we're praying that your word empowered by your spirit would come this morning and make much of Jesus in our midst help us see him change us by grace we pray comfort us convict us do your work among us by your word empowered by your spirit to make much of Jesus and help us leave here treasuring him all the more pray this in Jesus name amen so kids let me start uh, by talking to you and telling you a question that I often ask my kids and often when they haven't exactly been awesome. Maybe they haven't listened. And so a question I've I've grown to ask them, I don't remember I picked it up, I got it from someone else, is does daddy love you more when you're good or when you're bad? And the first couple of times to ask them when they're little, you know, depending, they all have different personalities, so they actually all answer a little bit differently, right? Iris just is kind of a, she knows what's right. She's like, well, you should love me the same in both, right? <laughs> Others are like, well, more when I'm good, more when, you know. So, so the answer is very, but, but the question I ask them is, does daddy love you more when you're good or when you're bad? And obviously what I tell them is I love them the same. Whether they're good or whether they're bad, it's not dependent on what they do or what rules they keep. But it's kind of hard for them to believe sometimes. And I think there's something inside of us, all of us, and you'll get conditioned by it as you grow up, kids, that makes us think we need to do a list of good things to be loved or to be worthy or to be known and cared for. Like if someone really knows me and all the bad stuff and I don't do all the things I'm supposed to do, how can I really be loved? And I know that that's going to happen as you grow up because adults... (laughs) We struggle with the same thing, right? Adults, do you sometimes struggle in your head or in your heart to believe that God loves you the same whether you're good or whether you're bad? Right? Past shame and current sin make you wonder sometimes, right? You won't say that out loud, but in your quiet times, in those moments, where does your mind go when you think of your past shame or current sin? Right? You find yourself thinking things like, I'll try harder. I'll do better. I'll keep the list this time. Never again, right? Never again. How many times have you said, never again? Right? You're you're kind of keeping this running scorecard in your mind. And deep in your soul, you think maybe you need to earn your way back into God's love. Like you know that he loves you, but if I could just get a couple of good days of Bible reading and prayer, and if that Bible reading and prayer could maybe coincide with a couple of days where I'm not harsh with my kids, I don't look at those websites, I don't let that frustration come out or that unforgiveness simmer in my heart, then I could go to church on Sunday feeling better. Could worship from the very beginning. And maybe you've noticed that that cycle that we all do, doesn't actually bring about peace in your heart or any lasting joy. 
In fact, at best what it brings is kind of an adrenaline, right? I'll do better. I'll do more. I'll keep the list. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. And you do for a couple weeks or a couple months. So at best, adrenaline. I'm going to work myself up to this. And at worst, depression. When you fail again and you find out that you still are sinful. Well, kids, the reason I tell my kids that I love them, whether they're good or bad, is I want them to know my love isn't based on what they do. Right? It, and that's what God is like for us if we trust in Jesus. We're sinners. Right? We've seen that through the book of Acts. You saw it in First Peter. We all disobey God. We all deserve hell. None of us could ever do enough or obey enough laws to earn our way to God. And therefore, we would be, it would be just for God to say, go to hell forever for your sins against me. That wouldn't be unfair of him. But Jesus came. He really came. And he lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die. He rose again to conquer death. He ascended on high to reign. We are saved by grace. And that means we're saved by trusting what Jesus has already done for us, not doing more to earn his love. Grace is free. Grace is a gift. Grace cannot be earned. Kids, have you ever done this at Christmas like, or a birthday? You, you get a gift. Someone says, here's a gift for you. Receive it. Enjoy it. They've thought of you. They've planned for you. They've loved you. They give you a gift. And you go, okay, what do I got to do to get this? Right? We don't do that. Because <laughs> it's free. It's a gift. And our passage today is going to take us back to a moment where this truth was established in the early church as precious and true. True, we see it confirmed by Scripture in our passage, and precious because Paul and Barnabas and others are willing to fight for it, fight a long and hard fight to preserve it. So today I want you to start by simply remembering that salvation from beginning to end is by grace alone. I want you to remember to be a child again who receives the Christmas gift. And right, they're not going, what do I have to do to earn this, mom or dad? They just run away to enjoy it in the next room, <laughs> away from you. You're like, wish you'd thank me a little bit more, right? But can we learn to be childlike again? To be dependent on grace alone? Are you weighed down by sin and shame this morning? Right now, even before this passage, remember your sins have been forgiven completely by grace. Are you doubting this morning that God could really love you, that he really does love you? He know he loves you, but he's just kind of off in the corner frowning on you all the time. Remember, you are saved by grace alone. Are you worn out trying to earn your way back into his love? Take that frown off his face. Come and drink the waters of grace and refresh your soul in his love. And if you're here this morning, you're thinking, he can never love me. Like, I know you're talking about all those good people who like swear once in a while and say mean things once in a while, but you don't know where I've been or what I've done. I'm looking around. Everyone in this room is dressed nice. They obviously have nice lives. They obviously do good things. I'm messy. I'm dirty. I'm filthy. 
You cannot outsin His grace. You have not done too much bad. You have not gotten too filthy with sin to be out of the reach of the cleansing grace of God that brings the peace your soul has been looking for. So with that background, let's dive into this text, this event that happened years ago that preserved this truth for us. Point number one, grace alone debated. Verses one to five. So you remember last week at the end of chapter 14, that Paul and Barnabas were going town to town preaching and being persecuted. Driven forward by the preciousness of Jesus, I said like me, performing in a dance recital because Iris is so precious to me, so they went to places and did things because of the preciousness of Christ to them. And eventually, we saw at the end of the chapter, they end end up back in Antioch, this strange family, different ethnicities, different kinds of people, different geography, all united in the gospel. He ends back at Antioch, this strange new hub of Christianity, and they told about how God was with them, and the main thing they're telling them is how God had done this work among the Gentiles, right? Time to rejoice, (laughs) God is working among the Gentiles. He's saving peoples. Salvation is winning. The celebration doesn't last a verse. (laughs) Not even a verse. In verse 1 of chapter 15, some men come from Judea teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, it says in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas don't agree. (laughs) Luke says, there was no small debate, which I take to mean there was an all-out brawl. Right, an all-out brawl of theological, what is true, what will be true, what will define the church. And this happens in Antioch about salvation. Well, Paul and Barnabas are appointed to head to Jerusalem and meet there with the elders and apostles. And as they travel there, it says, again, they bring much joy to the cities that they go through, these cities that have heard the gospel, as they talk about as God has brought salvation to the Gentiles. So even as they're going to this meeting, telling about what God's done, there's mainly joy. Yes! And then in verse (laughs) 5, after the apostles receive them with joy, we hear almost a repeat of verse 1. To some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So in verse 1 and verse 5, it's kind of setting up this debate, these speeches. There's a group of people saying that in order to be a part of the people of God, in order to be saved... They must keep the law of Moses and the sign of being part of the people of God, the the Abrahamic covenant, is this circumcision. Now, it's really easy for us in our day to be really hard on these guys. (laughs) Just go, man, you guys are like crazy. Right? There's grace alone. That's who we are. We're Protestants. But it's kind of understandable in one sense what these people in verses 1 and verses 5 were thinking. I'm not going to take all the time to read them today, but if you go and read Genesis 17, for example, or Exodus 12, what you'll find is that circumcision was vital for foreigners. Sometimes we forget in the Old Testament that foreigners actually were welcomed in, the nations actually were welcomed in if they'd be circumcised and then come into this covenant community. 
And so as they're thinking of this, maybe they're not just horrible people who just don't understand grace. Maybe they're going, it's happening, right? You can enter in with us. You can come in like it says in Genesis 17 or Exodus 12. But the fact remains that they think there's a list of things that must happen to be saved. Some laws that must be kept. And honestly, for these guys in Genesis 17, Exodus 12, these Judaizers coming in and talking to them this way, probably there's some comfort there, right? (laughs) It's comfortable. It's what we've always done. It feels safe for them and, and safe for these new Gentiles. And so the question for the early church as this new people of God is this. Do Gentiles need to become Jews to be saved and loved by God? Another way to say it, same question, different way, is is salvation by grace through faith plus circumcision and law-keeping or is it by grace alone? Same question for these people in verses 1 and 5. All right, point number two with the, set, the stage set, grace alone defended. So they gather with the apostles and elders to discuss this matter. And in verse 7, it says much debate happened. We don't know exactly how long, but it sounds like all the sides were being heard. And then we'll see three arguments made. Peter speaks in verses 7 to 11, Paul and Barnabas in verse 12, and James in verses 13 to 18. So let's take those one at a time and see how they build a case on one another. First, Peter stands up in verse 7 and reminds them that he was chosen by God to speak the word of God to the Gentiles. So if we've been going through Acts, we've been trying to go through kind of at a quick pace, if you've noticed, so you can remember what happened. This was happening in real time, and I want you to remember as these speeches happened, oh, oh yeah, that happened. And you remember back Peter's vision, right, how he went to the Italian soldier Cornelius and his family and friends. You remember that story. And Peter at first was like, I don't get it. All things aren't clean. I've been pure. And God's like, all things are clean. All peoples are clean. Go with them. His vision was that all things were now clean. Not just foods, but other peoples. All were clean who would trust Jesus for their sins. And as Peter preached the gospel to that family, to Cornelius and his family and his friends that he had gathered, they believed the gospel. Good news came. They were actually saved and brought into the family of God. In verse 8 here, Peter says that it's God who knows the hearts of men. And God gave these Gentiles that believed the gospel the Holy Spirit and made no distinction. What's his point? He's saying, that I just I preached the gospel of Jesus to these Gentiles. They heard it and God gave them himself. Right? The Holy Spirit's not a, a force, not an emotional wave in a worship service. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. Therefore, if God gave them himself and made no distinction among them, how are we going to start making distinctions? God judges the heart. God makes the rules. God's in charge of how this works. How were they made clean? How were their hearts cleansed? Peter in verse 9 says, by faith in Jesus. That's it. That's his point. That's it. Just spoke the gospel and they trusted in Jesus. God cleansed their hearts, confirmed their salvation by granting them the Holy Spirit just like he did in Jerusalem at Pentecost for the Jews. They weren't cleansed from sins by 
circumcision. They weren't saved by obeying the law. They were cleansed and saved on the spot by faith in Jesus Christ and given the gift of the Holy Spirit so we were sure what was going on. That's the point. In verse 10, Peter gets a little bit more personal for them like he tends to do with his Jewish brothers. (laughs) He says, why would we put God to the test by making the Gentiles do something that we've never been able to do? So kids, can you imagine your parents outside trying to do a house project? Maybe they have some tools you've never seen and some, some techniques you've never seen. And they're out there and they work and they work, and they work for days and days and years and years, and you've kind of watched it from afar. You're not sure what's going on. And they come over to you having not even gotten close to completing the project, and they say, now you do it. Finish it. Get the job done. That would seem crazy. (laughs) Don't even understand what you're doing. Doesn't look like you did a very good job. (laughs) You didn't finish the job. You couldn't do it. They couldn't do it in their strength, and now they wanted you to do it in your strength, unacquainted with what was even going on. And Peter says, that's what's going on here with the Jews. They're expecting something they could never even do themselves instead of rejoicing that God has made a way for them, a way for them to be saved even though they could never do it. Peter says God has made a way to do what they never could, and now they want to test him and go against him. But this is not just a rebuke to the Jews. Peter ends with good news in verse 11. He's saying, you want to put this burden on them. They've never been able to, we've never been able to accomplish it. Why wouldn't you instead rejoice in what Jesus has done for us? Right, verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That is not a small statement for Peter to make to these Jews that are thinking they got to do the law. He's saying, we couldn't do it. So instead of condemning, rejoice. (laughs) There's grace in Jesus. Jesus has finished the work we could never finish. How are the Gentiles saved? By grace, through faith in Jesus. How are we saved as Jews? By grace. Through faith in Jesus, God is saving all peoples by grace through faith in Jesus and confirming that salvation by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's the last we hear of Peter in Acts. It's a good note to go out on for him. right? He just kind of goes into the background and now Paul comes into the foreground. In verse 12, Peter sits down, Barnabas and Paul stand up, and we get one verse. So we've seen all these things they've done. We, we have the backstory, but we get one verse where it says that they stand up and they say what God did through them among the Gentiles. In other words, they're confirming Peter's point. So Peter says, this is what's happening. What, what do you guys see? And they go, well, what we see is God saving through the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus and pouring out his Holy Spirit. We've seen what Peter says is happening. Then James stands up after they sit down, and perhaps as the leader of the Jerusalem church, we'd expect him to argue. Like, here comes the counter-argument. But instead, James has this mic drop moment. 
right, with the Jerusalem council. He's actually going to end the debate. And in verses 13 to 15, he says that Simeon, that's Peter, has related God's work to save a people for his name among the Gentiles. And then in verses 16 to 18, he quotes from Amos 9, 11 to 12, and Isaiah 45, 21 in verse 18. So let's just take a, just a second here to talk about what's going on in those passages. Well, in Amos 9, 11 to 12, if you went and read it, it's coming right on the heels, right after a judgment on Israel for their disobedience. And after this judgment on Israel for their disobedience, he says, God says to them, I will rebuild the tent of David from the ruins of judgment, and I will take a people for my name from all the nations. And then Isaiah 45, 21, if we were to go there, it says that God is the Savior. There's none besides him. If you read just one verse on, Isaiah 45, 22, it says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. So what's James saying as he quotes these Old Testament passages? He's saying, well, Peter's telling you what he saw, what God did. Paul and Barnabas are confirming that. But all the more, God said in his prophets that he would rebuild the tent of David and take a people for his, his name from Israel and all the Gentiles. He's saying Scripture confirms this. Scripture confirms this. How has God done this? He sent Jesus as the Savior from the line of David to pay for our sins. Rise again. Sit on the throne of David forever. You'll notice in the book of Acts this Davidic theme comes out over and over again. Jesus is the one, the king in the line of David who will sit on the throne forever. This isn't new. And now this message of the king's death for sins and resurrection to conquer death is available to all peoples that will repent, which simply means to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. And in fact, I think if we went back and read the Old Testament, not just in Isaiah and Amos, but go to passages this afternoon and read Deuteronomy 30 or Ezekiel 36 and see that this circumcision was meant to point to what God was really looking for, a circumcision of the heart. Once and have new hearts, hearts that are circumcised to worship, right? What does Paul say in Philippians 3? We are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus. So the argument really from James is, you think this circumcision is important, but the true spiritual circumcision of the heart has happened by faith in Jesus, by grace alone and that's evidenced, Ezekiel 36, by the Holy Spirit, causing them to have new hearts and walk in His commands. James basically ends the debate by saying, not only is God confirming salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus alone, but we should have been expecting this. Israel has made a mess forever through disobedience over and over again and could never keep the law, but God promised from of old that he would save a people for his name from the nations, including Israel, including the Gentiles, through the line of David. And the good news for us and these Gentiles is that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, grace alone, no works of law, and that's good news because we have never kept the law as a people. And with that... It seems the debate is over. We don't, we, don't, we don't get their reactions necessarily. We just get his judgment that comes next. 
The debate's over. It's clear through the preaching of the gospel and the confirmation of the Holy Spirit and the witness of the scriptures that God is saving a new people united and marked by faith in Jesus, not by circumcision or the keeping of the law. And this truth still stands today, right? This is what we worship Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. By grace, we've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works that no one should boast. Point number three, grace alone decided. So this debate is over. James makes a judgment in verse 19, a decision that the Gentiles that turn to God should not be burdened, that those who repent of sins and trust in Jesus should not be troubled by circumcision or the keeping of the law. Indeed, salvation is by grace through faith. He renders his verdict. And then in verse 20, he gives them a letter, or suggests a letter with four things that they should do. Right? So he says, abstain from things polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, abstain from what has been strangled, abstain from blood. So salvation by grace through faith alone, we're not going to add anything to that. But is he giving them now, right away, again one verse later, a list of things they must do to be saved right after he said how that's not how it works? No, I don't think so. Instead, I think what he's doing here, and there's a few different, uh, go to different commentators, get a few different opinions, but I think what he's doing here is seeking to unite the church of Christ, Jews and Gentiles, for the sake of love. Indeed, in verse 21, he says, Moses will continue to be read in every city and every Sabbath in synagogues. People are going to keep hearing these laws. And as the church is learning to live together as one new people, James is appealing to these Gentiles to not do things that would be overly offensive to their Jewish brothers and Jewish sisters or to those Jews who are not yet believers. All of these things that he lists here, they kind of seem random at first, but if you look into it, all these things would have been associated with pagan idol worship at pagan Gentile temples. So James knows... Man, they start doing some of those things, they're going to get a side eye from their Jewish brothers and sisters. It's going to be a stumbling block. It's going to get ugly. It's going to get messy. And James also knows it shouldn't be too much to ask of these Gentiles to leave these things behind and knows it will be helpful for unity and fellowship in the church. First of all, Gentiles shouldn't be partaking in idolatry anymore anyways if they're believers. That's easy. Gentiles shouldn't be partaking in sexual immorality anymore because as they turn from sin and follow Jesus, they should leave that behind. But James is also a realist. He knows that these things might still be tempting to mix together with their new faith in Jesus just as there's things that the Jews are wanting to mix together with their new faith in Jesus. And so he's calling on them, leave those things behind for the sake of your Jewish brothers and sisters. In fact, at temples, I went and read a bunch more than I ever wanted to about strangled animals this week. Um, so that in these temples, there was this practice where they would strangle the animals to, to kill them for sacrifice, and therefore there was still a lot of blood. It wasn't drained out. It wasn't, they weren't sacrificed the way that the law had told them to, and therefore it was especially offensive to the Jews because they thought blood signified life. So there's all these dynamics going on now. Salvation by grace through faith alone. But man, y'all are really different. 
There's a lot of weird stuff we're going to have to figure out as we walk this road together. And so for the sake of fellowship and unity in this new people saved by grace through faith, James asked the Gentiles to leave these things behind for their fellow brothers and sisters. You want a longer kind of commentary on this, go read 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 and see how Paul navigates these waters there. Point takeaway for us today is this is what the gospel does. See, so often we want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and earn our way to God's love and try to transform ourselves, and it doesn't work. (laughs) It just doesn't get better. It doesn't work. And yet when we rest in the gospel, that we're saved by grace alone through Christ alone, the gospel begins to change us so that we want to lay down our rights and our freedoms for the sake of others. You say, how do I know that they wanted to do that? Well, because they received the letter in verse 31 and they rejoiced. This is good news. They were like, man, he's making us do this stuff. Right? They rejoiced. Our opinions and our rights are tiny. So small compared to the gospel. And therefore, it is right to ask Christians, to sometimes ask the church, to defer to their brothers and sisters for the sake of fellowship and unity. And it's by the grace of the gospel and the power of the Spirit that we can actually gladly do this, not grumbling, but rejoicing. Yes, I will lay down my rights for you. That's what Jesus did for me. Yes, I'm happy to do that. What else would I do? I'm a Christian. Here's how uh, Daryl Bach, one of the commentators that's been helpful, summarizes a, a sermon by a preacher he read. I think it's helpful. He says, on the one hand, salvation by grace is an issue of Christian truth that is not to be compromised. No particular work of the law was added as a requirement for salvation. Salvation cannot be a matter of human works. It is about receiving God's grace from start to end. On the other hand, Christian fellowship means that grace should be shown for differences that are not central to the truth of salvation as an expression of love. This deference preserves the church, protects it from fragmentation, and demonstrates to the world the very gospel we say we believe. I think that's helpful. Grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, fight for that till the death, which makes everything else optional, way less important. Makes it really easy for me to go, I can lay down my rights for you. No, I don't prefer that. No, I don't like that. No, I don't want to do that. And, and no, I, don't, I know it's not even true. But I'll do that for you. I'll lay down my rights for you. So the question for us as a church is, do we do this well? Do we defer for the love and for the sake of others, even when we have freedoms and rights, because we know that unity and fellowship in the gospel is so much more important. Get this, in the next chapter, like just a few verses later, and I think Luke does this on purpose to make us just go, whoa. In the next chapter, Paul will have Timothy circumcised to go on mission with him so as not to cause offense to the Jews. What? What is that about? Right? Paul fights to the end against adding anything to the gospel. You want him to be circumcised? Not over my dead body. You want to come on mission with me? Sorry, man. You're going to have to get circumcised. 
so as not to cause any offense to our Jewish brothers and sisters or the unbelieving Jews. Because as much as he fights for the end to add anything to the gospel, he'll also quickly lay down his rights for the cause of the gospel, becoming all things to all people in order that he might win some, might not cause offense to his brothers and sisters or the world around him. Oh, that the gospel... Our salvation in Jesus alone would be so precious to us that we would happily have it transform us to lay down our rights like our Savior did for the sake of others. In verses 22 to 29, just to summarize it, they make a plan to send Barnabas and Paul, men who laid down their lives for the cause of the gospel, and then a couple respected members, prophets of this Jewish church, to deliver the letter that said, these messengers of the circumcision spoke totally out of turn. Don't listen to them. You don't have to worry about them. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. And please leave behind these things for the sake of love and unity. Point number four, grace alone delivered. On verses 30 to 35, they're sent off and go back to Antioch and deliver the letter. They gather the people they read the letter, and as the people should, they rejoice. <laughs> this is good news. They are saved by grace through faith, loved by God as his sons and daughters, welcomed into the family. They're glad to walk away from association with pagan worship and lay down their rights for fellowship and unity. Can you imagine this occasion? <laughs> Can you imagine just being at this gathering going, <laughs> here we are, the new people of God, Saved by grace alone through faith in the death and resurrection of our King Jesus, who is redeeming a people for his name and for our eternal joy. We're united around this central truth, and man, we will gladly lay down whatever else is secondary or third tier in order to love one another and advance the cause of Christ. To demonstrate this peace and this love, Judas and Silas, who came along, the brothers from Jerusalem, encourage and to strengthen them with many words. Spend time with them, and they're sent back in peace. That's a symbolic Christ word thing, right? They went to Jerusalem from Antioch with lots of division. They're sending them back to Jerusalem from Antioch with what? Peace in Christ, because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and everything else is secondary. Paul and Barnabas hang out there longer, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, continuing their strengthening work in this new hub of Christianity. The council decides, the letters delivered, the truth is established, and here we are in 2021 in Lakeville, Minnesota, most of us Gentiles still standing on the truth that was preserved at this council. So application now. I asked you at the beginning to remember, to let your heart remember that you're saved by grace alone. Now I just want to call you to rejoice like this people did, that salvation is by grace alone. I've been praying as you hear this truth again, as I heard this truth again this week, that you would find yourself just going, I'm just going to go ahead and walk out of that shame. Grace is really that big. It's really enough. I've really been saved by grace alone, not by anything I've done. So that grace is big enough to save me, to help me walk out of shame. I've been praying that you'd walk out of the pattern of trying to do a list of things to earn your way to God's love. Israel never did it. You will never do it. <laughs> just, just walk out of that pattern. 
That's a wearying pattern that exhausts and creates more sin and more shame as we're either filled with self-promotion when we do well or self-pity when we fail. Rather, go back and rejoice in the gospel today. What if we really let our hearts rejoice in the gospel? Like, what if that's what you thought of first in the morning and remembered right before you went to sleep? If you're like me and you wake up in the morning, you're like, problem, 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 sinner, 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 right? (laughs) And those kind of plague me before I go to bed, too. And I've just had to demand of myself by the grace of God to go, I'm in Christ. I'm saved. His grace is enough. And as I'm going to bed, going, I'm in Christ. His grace is enough for me and for this problem, for that problem, and for that problem. What if we didn't just remember, but we rejoiced in it? Rejoiced instead of trying to wearying, this wearying pattern, trying to work our way out of our sin, cleanse ourselves from our sin. What if we just rejoiced that God has cleansed our hearts by faith in the work of Jesus? We could never do enough on our own, but Jesus has finished the work on our behalf. If you've put your faith in Jesus to forgive your sins, you can walk out of the shame, not because you feel emotional that I'm saying it right now. You can walk out of the shame based on the objective truth that your sins are covered by the righteousness of God and God's love for you is unconditional. Like when God looks at you, he sees you the way he sees his son. God has confirmed that by giving you his spirit and by his word that all people are saved by grace through Jesus. And we're a family by grace alone, which means we extend grace to each other. We lay down our rights. We walk in love together as we first rest in the unconditional grace and love of God ourselves. We're transformed to be gracious as we rest in grace. If you don't actually believe grace yourself, you're not going to be very gracious towards others. When we realize how deep and wide grace has gone in casting our sins as far as the east is from the west, it begins to dissolve our pride. I can do it. I'm better than that person. It begins to dissolve our weary efforts to do better, and it creates just a humility and a rest in our souls. And humility and rest, then as it sinks deep into us, begins to help us see others through eyes of grace and extend unconditional love like it's been extended to us. Suddenly we want to serve. We want to lay down our rights and bear others' burdens because we have been loved and received a grace like that. So I've been praying all week that we remember and rejoice in grace alone. I mean, can you believe grace? <laughs> I'm thinking this week, like, can you believe grace? It's hard to believe Because we know ourselves. We know other people. But grace is enough. It's a free gift. So don't take it and put it back under the tree and go try to work your way to earn it. You'll never get back to the tree. Just enjoy the gift. I've been praying that rejoicing in grace would transform us by grace and that we'd be a people that would constantly tell others of what God has done in Christ for us because we just can't help ourselves, and a people that put on display for the world the grace of God as we interact with one another. So let me pray, and then we're going to come to the table. So Lord, this is a meal now where we celebrate 
that it's by grace and grace alone that we're saved. Your broken body, broken on our behalf. Your shed blood, shed for the forgiveness of our sins. By grace alone. And this is a meal where we come as sinners and confess we've sinned against you. Confess that we can't do it on our own and we ask you for more of your grace to help us believe we're forgiven and more of your grace to help us walk in the newness of abundant life in Jesus. This is a meal that's meant to have us search our hearts for sin and ask you to help us fight it. This is a meal that's meant to have us search our heart for bitterness within this body and help us go and reconcile. And this is a meal that's meant to be put on display for those in the room right now who don't know Jesus and have them see that they can, they can indeed eat and drink with Jesus now if they'll trust in his broken body and shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins. So Lord, we rejoice that we are saved by grace alone, that there's no list of things we have to accomplish, there's no righteousness we have to attain on our own, but by grace and grace alone you save us, you sanctify us, you transform us, and you'll lead us to glory. So Lord, I pray for those in this room, those that have never believed the gospel, that this would be the moment where they would say, I want grace. I want Jesus. And for those of us in this room who have him, that we would believe again that his grace is full enough and deep enough that we can boldly approach his throne even now with confidence, knowing it is a throne of grace and mercy and well-timed help for those who come by the blood of Jesus. Work grace among your people now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.